We're going to turn to page 1075, and you'll find yourself in John chapter 9, page 1075. So beginning at John chapter 9, verse 1. As the Lord Jesus Christ went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. And now we move down to verse 35 on the next page under the heading spiritual blindness. Jesus heard that they had thrown the formerly blind man out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just remain standing and pray for one minute. Lord, thank you for all that we've learnt already in this service. And we simply pray that as we look at your word, you will come and speak to us afresh, clearly and simply and directly. Amen. Well, can we just say a big thank you uh, to Charles and to Tim and all the team here. We've really enjoyed being with you, and uh, we're heading off back to York today or tomorrow. And um, it's great to celebrate Mother's Day. I had a wonderful mother, and I'm so grateful to her for all that she gave me. Um, My father was a pilot. He was a Uh, an RAF pilot, and then he became a test pilot, and then latterly an airline pilot. And I heard a story about a pilot who uh, was flying a little single-engined aeroplane, 
I don't know whether this is actually a true story or not. I think it probably isn't. And um, he had three people on board his little aeroplane. He had a bishop, he had a student, and he had the brain of Britain. And uh, unfortunately, the plane ran into some trouble. Basically, the engine stopped uh, in the plane. And unfortunately, he had only three parachutes on board. So the first person to speak was the pilot. And he said, look, I am the pilot. Uh, I think you ought to let me have the first parachute. So they discussed it together and they agreed. So he took a parachute and with a, a great whoop of delight, he jumped out. And the next person to speak was the brain of Britain. And he said, well, he said, I am the brain of Britain. I think, you know, really for the future of this country, we should, you should let me. And they discussed it and they agreed that he should. So he took the next parachute. And the next person to speak was the bishop. And the bishop said to the student, he said, look, I'm an old man. I've lived my life. I'm ready to die. Why don't you take the parachute and jump? Which was a great thing to say in the circumstance. He was very surprised when the student turned to him and he said, but bishop, there are two parachutes here. And the bishop said, why is that? And the student replied, the brain of Britain took my rucksack. (laughs) Now, that is absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to speak about. But if you've got your Bible, can you turn with me to John chapter 9? And we're going to look at this uh, story, this amazing story. And I've, I've uh, entitled the talk, How Can I Find God? And I want to start by a true story. Uh, her name was Jean Smith. She was in her mid-60s, and she came from the middle of Wales. She'd been blind for 16 years. She had a white stick, and she had a guide dog called Tina. An infection had eaten away at the retinas and mirrors behind her eyes. They could not be replaced, and she was in constant pain and agony. Jean went on a local alpha course in her church, and they had a day away to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. And during this time, there was some prayer and the pain left her. So she decided to go to church the following Sunday to thank God. The vicar anointed her with oil, and as she wiped the oil away, she could see the communion table. God had miraculously healed her. She'd not seen her husband for 16 years, and she was surprised at how white his beard was. And she had never seen her daughter-in-law before. Her six-and-a-half-year-old grandson used to guide her around the puddles to avoid her getting her feet wet. Who'd done that, Gran? He said to her. She replied, Jesus made me better. I hope you said thank you, Gran, he said. I will never stop thanking him, she answered. If we can go on to the next slide, I find that there are many, many people in our society who really struggle to believe in God. They interviewed 600 young people in London between the ages of 18 and 35, and they asked them what was the biggest problem or struggle that they had with believing in Christianity. And one of, there were six main problems that came up. 
one of the major problems that came up was the question of God's existence. One person said, I don't feel any need to believe. Another person, a doctor, said, I could give you a one-word answer, proof. Now, can I just say that on the subject of proof, it's important to say that you cannot prove God's existence any more than you can disprove God's existence. And the Bible does not set out to prove God's existence, partly because it assumes it, and partly because God is not a mathematical formula that can be proved. He is a personal being who must be experienced. Let me give you a simple illustration. If I told you about my wife, she's called Ursula. When I married her, she was called Mushy. I still call her Mushy. And uh, she's five foot two. She's blonde. I I think she's very attractive. Um, And she loves running. She goes running often uh, during the week. She loves gardening. She's the mother to our five children. I met her out in East Africa when I was teaching at a school up near um, Lake Victoria. She has twin sisters, one of whom is the British champion of golf, uh, the senior champion. Now, if I said to you, do you believe me? I would imagine that most of you would say yes. But if I asked you, do you know Mushy or Ursula? Most of you in this room would have to say no. Some of you actually do know her. You've met her. And you've got to meet someone to know that they really exist. And it's a little bit like that with God. God is holy. He's majestic. He's pure. He's spiritual. And that's the opposite of us. We're not holy. We're sinful. Helen's spoken about that. We're not pure. We're finite. And we're physical. So how can we possibly know and experience that sort of God. The only way we can know a God like that is if he reveals himself to us. He has to reveal himself to us. So what I want to do uh, is look at this story. It's a wonderful story. And look at the way in which God reveals himself to this man who was blind. He'd been born blind. Uh, And then I want you to notice, and this is the thing I really want to focus on, is how the man's view of Jesus changes during the story. So let's start, and we'll start next slide. Uh, He begins by calling Jesus a man. Look at verse 11. He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. Now we're told by John uh, at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus sees the man who was, he he didn't go blind, he was born blind. That's very significant. And uh, Jesus expressly repudiates the automatic link between sin and suffering. The Pharisees assumed that the man was blind because he had been steeped in sin at birth. 
That's in verse 34. And even Jesus' disciples ask him, Rabbi, verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus tells them that they're asking the wrong question. He replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then Jesus spits uh, onto the ground and he makes some clay or some mud and he puts the mud on the man's eyes and he tells the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. It was a large open-air pool. It measured 20 feet by 30 feet and was the main water supply for Jerusalem. And the man did what Jesus says. And uh, he sees... I should think he went, I should should think he was very, very joyful if you'd been born blind and you could see. I don't think you'd be very calm about that. And quickly a crowd gathers round and uh, uh, there's a debate that goes on. And some people say this was the man who they'd known, he was a beggar. And others say, no, it can't possibly be the man. Uh, And uh, it just looks like the man. It's all there in the text. And the man says, I am the man. And they ask him, well, how were your eyes opened? And he says, the man, the man they called Jesus, put some mud on my eyes and told me to wash, and I came back seeing. Now, can we just go on to the next slide? Uh, We have to start with the person of Jesus Christ. I, I wonder how much you know about the person of Jesus Christ. I find that many people, and I was like this for a long time, have some fundamentally wrong ideas about Christianity. Uh, And I don't want to offend anybody here uh, this morning, but Christianity is not primarily to do with rules and regulations. It's not about keeping the rules, trying to earn God's favor and acceptance. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Neither is it a philosophy. It's not like Marxism or Buddhism. It's a person. It's not a philosophy. It's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not about ritual or ceremonies. It's about knowing, trusting, and loving Jesus Christ. Now, if we go on in the story, the second thing that the man goes on to say about Jesus is he calls him a prophet. And if we can go on, if you look at the text again, look at verse 17. I will try and just skate in quickly what happens in the story so that you can understand it. The man is taken, uh, the blind man who can now see is taken to the Pharisees, the religious leaders... And uh, we see here the the danger of getting caught up in minutiae and missing the whole point. And when the man gives his testimony of healing, some respond, this man, talking about Jesus Christ, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, their argument was, it sounds absurd to us, but but it wasn't then, Their argument is very simple. Jesus, they said, cannot be from God because he's broken 
the law or, more accurately, their interpretation of the law. Their interpretation of the law said you were not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. You couldn't heal a man unless that person's life was in danger. And Jesus had made some clay, so they argued he was guilty of work. You were not even allowed, according to their interpretation of the law, to cut your fingernails on the Sabbath. And he's healed the man. But others in the crowd say, no, he must be from God. How could he possibly not be from God to be able to do such a miracle? So they start arguing amongst each other. And then they eventually turn to him and they say, well, who do you say that he is? And I want you to notice what he says. Look at verse 17. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. Now, that he's already moved in his belief and his understanding of who Jesus is. A prophet is someone sent from God. The Jews admired, they venerated the prophets, men like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. These were people sent by God. And Jesus had already claimed, if you look earlier on in verse 5, to be the light of the world. And then he miraculously heals this blind man to show the people that he really was the light of the world. And the interesting thing is, I haven't got time to do this, I'd love to trace it through. If you go through John's gospel, again and again, Jesus makes these extraordinary claims about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the one who can satisfy your deepest hunger. Or I am the resurrection and the life. He can satisfy our hunger for life after death. Or I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he satisfies our hunger for meaning and purpose in this life. And then each time when he made these extraordinary claims, he doesn't just make them, he then does something, usually a miracle, to show the people that what he's claiming is absolutely true. Now, I'd never seen this until my vicar pointed it out to me in London when I soon after I became a Christian. This extraordinary combination of very egocentric claims, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the light of the world, I am the way of, and the truth, no one comes to God except through me, is combined with a very self-effacing, humble character. That is completely unparalleled in the, in the history of the world. People who make very egocentric claims do not live the sort of life that Jesus Christ lived. And then thirdly, that, uh, he, he goes on, if you just turn over the, um, the, the page, he goes on to confess, next slide, he goes on to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, again, let me just quiet, try and very quickly summarize the story for you. There's a great debate the people are t taking sides. Some believe that Jesus is from God. Some say he can't be. Some are opposing Jesus. Some are defending Jesus. Still the same today. And the man's argument is very, very simple. Once I was blind, but now I can see. 
So they throw him out, they excommunicate him out of the synagogue, and then it's so beautiful this, Jesus comes to find him. He looks for him. And then he asks this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now the Son of Man was an Old Testament phrase that Jesus often used to describe himself. It's a messianic title. It comes from the book of Daniel, which means that he's the Son of God. Do you believe in the Son of God? Tell me, sir, so that I may believe in him. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Lord, he says, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, let me just tell you one thing that's really interesting about this. If you go through those verses, John uses the word believe three times. It's there again and again. Do you believe? Do you believe? Yes, Lord, I believe. One word in English, believe. If you go through John's gospel, John uses the word believe 98 times. But in the Greek, when John uses the word believe, he uses it in three ways. First of all, you can believe that something is true. So, for example, in the Apostles' Creed, I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And you can say that. I believe that. But he also uses it in a second uh, sense, And that is when I put my trust in something. I could say to you now, do you believe that that chair will hold you up? Yes, I do believe the chair will hold me up. Well, take your feet off the the floor and prove that the chair, you don't have to do this, will actually hold you up. So that's the second type of belief. I I, I have confidence in something or in someone. And the third type of Uh, use of the word believe is commitment. When I commit, when I committed myself to my wife, she committed herself to me, I I made a commitment to stay faithful to her, to love her until death us do part. And she promised the same to me. And that's commitment. That's a commitment. That's a covenant. I enter into, I entered into a covenant with her. So I want to ask you this morning, Where are you in that stage of belief? Are you at the point of saying, well, I believe in my head that Jesus died and that he rose again? Have you put your confidence or your trust in Jesus Christ? Or are you committed to him? Have you entered into a covenant with him to be faithful to him and to follow him, to love him, to put him first in your life? And as I finish... How does this work in practice? Well, I used to go and stay with my grandparents. They lived in, in uh, London. And there was this picture on the wall of the bedroom. I never understood it, actually. It's a picture by... It's called The Light of the World. And it's a picture by uh, the artist Holman Hunt. And, uh, and, and then when I became a Christian many years later, somebody pointed out to me that... Jesus is standing at the door of of the person's life. The door represents the life. And he's knocking on the door. And there's no handle on the door. 
because the handle is on the inside. I have to open the door to Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever done that. I know that many of you have. There may be somebody here who's never done that. And I want to just um, give you a chance now as I finish this sermon to do that, to actually ask Jesus Christ to forgive you and to come into your life. And then after I've done that, I want everybody to fill in a blue card. So would you all like to take a blue card? Were they in the, in this, in the, in your service? And you should also have a pen. I'd like everybody to do this. If you could get a pen, because we want everyone to respond in whatever way is right. So if you'd like to just have that, uh, we're going to do that. We're going to make our responses uh, in just a minute. But let's just bow our heads and uh, let's pray together. Now I want you to imagine, if you can, that Jesus Christ is here and uh, he's standing outside your life and he's knocking. He wants to come in to your life. He wants to forgive you and to heal you. We're all broken. We all need healing, forgiveness. And he also wants to give you power, moral power, to be the sort of person he wants you to be. And he can do that if we let him in and ask him to, to, to take control. So here's a prayer that you could pray. It's very similar to the prayer I prayed and probably very similar to the prayer that Helen prayed um, all those years ago. So you can just echo this prayer in your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for the things that I've done wrong in my life. Just take a moment to ask his forgiveness for anything particular that is on your conscience. Please forgive me, Lord. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. And thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.